The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hi, it's uh, still day five. Sarah nodded off, so I thought we could talk. She's something, huh? I mean, she's she's pretty and, and, and smart and incredibly sexy. A little mixed up philosophically, but what can you expect right now? She seems to have fallen for me. It was uh, a meant-to-be thing, I think. We spent the whole day just talking about stuff, you know? And, and, and then we tried to figure out things we had in common to see why we survived. It turns out that it's, it's either an allergy to ragweed or the fact that we both take zinc. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 28th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be As we head into our last broadcast for the month of May, it might appear that the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown is ending, but from where I'm sitting, nothing could be further from the truth. The shutdowns are merely changing shape as politicians seek to entrench their recently exercised undemocratic powers over the rest of us. Whether politicians continue to call the upcoming era the new normal, quote-unquote, or the post-COVID era, which is another term I've heard, what they have planned for us is definitely not normal. In fact, it is perverse. Their timeline for ending the legally ordered shutdowns keeps shifting, and the door is now being permanently left open for the government to order forced shutdowns in the future at whim. Our politicians have trapped themselves in a viral spiral of self-inflicted, disastrous decision-making and policy initiatives that make any harm done by the SARS-CoV-2 virus pale by comparison. Before that discussion gets underway, don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. And as always, consider offering your financial support. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials. Now is not the time to ease up. Is something we keep hearing a lot lately with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I want to ask something. If not now, then when? And the answer, as we seem to be clearly learning, is never, according to the people who tell us not to ease up. Since the beginning of this so-called pandemic, every time a stated condition or objective was set and met, well, they moved the goalposts and told us that now is not the time, again, to completely lift the shutdowns. Well, If it's true that now is not the time to lift the shutdown, then clearly the right time was several weeks ago, if not months ago. The fact that the shutdown is still in place, or that the government is micromanaging a so-called economic recovery, demonstrates an exercise of government authority and power that should never be permitted in a free society. So let me be clear from the outset. A so-called gradually 
implemented end to the shutdown, with state-enforced sanctions for failures to comply to completely irrational rules, is still a complete shutdown. And any reopening of the marketplace, under the constant threat of another imposed shutdown justified on virus statistics, is also still a complete shutdown. Not only that, it's terrifying. And it's tyranny. Yet many people would have us be forced to live this way permanently. And still many others allow themselves to be subjected to this permanent state of emergency and instability. And why? Ostensibly all because of some fear centered around a virus called SARS-CoV-2, which as viruses go and as data accumulates, is not particularly a concerning virus despite its origins and unique characteristics. And that's why the whole issue surrounding the virus itself separate from the shutdown, has to be brought into some kind of common-sense, rational perspective. Otherwise, a conversation can't continue. You know, I feel like I've been writing a novel recently, as each consecutive broadcast of Just Right becomes another chapter in a plot that keeps leading in a constant and sinister direction that long ceased having anything to do with fighting a viral pandemic. There's one thing we've learned on coronavirus, the contrast between what we've been told by the official medical establishment and a growing number of, lo- of frontline healthcare professionals can no longer be avoided. It's becoming glaring and it's becoming a serious factor. In fact, it appears that much of the advice promoted by our politicians and medical bureaucrats is diametrically opposed to that being given by many doctors and virologists directly involved with and on the front lines of the COVID-19 global pandemic. And of course, one of the most confusing things we hear are these completely polarized opinions regarding social distancing and the wearing of protective masks. Officialdom says social distancing and physical isolation are necessary to slow the virus, while the frontliners say that social distancing and physical isolation actually make people more susceptible not only to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but to a whole host of other viruses and potential diseases. And again, officialdom says wearing masks in public is recommended for safety, whereas the frontliners argue that wearing masks is not necessarily healthy for those who wear them. And this practice, too, can lead to one becoming more vulnerable to other viruses. As Ireland's professor Dolores Cahill was heard saying on our last broadcast, quote, it's almost like they want to have a high increase in death so that they can retrospectively justify the lockdown and curtailments of our freedoms, end quote. Well, speaking retrospectively myself, I think that while justifying their past lockdowns might be part of this whole strategy, what they're really trying to justify is their continued future lockdowns, which they're already openly calling for, should their statistics and various ratios of cases versus non-cases be used as some sort of regulatory device. And of course, the elephant in the room is that effective treatments for SARS-CoV-2 already exist, long demonstrated to be effective with treating other coronavirus infections. The use of hydroxychloroquine continues to be regarded as only anecdotal by America's Anthony Fauci, Canada's Theresa Tam, the American Medical Association, the Canadian Medical Association, and the politicians who accept only these official narratives. Well, if recoveries and cures attributable to hydroxychloroquine and other treatments are only to be regarded as anecdotal, how do you explain the fact that these anecdotes have now been told many, many times, if not thousands, yet still do not even qualify as a statistic worth citing, especially by people who love to collect statistics, you know? These people love statistics. 
but there's one they're not bothering to collect. And the debate about hydroxychloroquine is infinitely more significant than a lot of people want us to believe. As you may know, on a number of our past recent broadcasts, we featured the voices of several doctors, virologists, and professors who all testified as to the positive value of this drug in the treatment of COVID-19. And among them were California doctors Dan Erickson and Artin Masihi, Dr. Judy Mikovits, and of course on last week's show, Ireland's Professor Dolores Cahill. All of them came with impressive credentials and expertise in their respective fields. All recommended generally against wearing masks, generally against social distancing, and all were in favor of treatments like hydroxychloroquine. And of course, all cautioned against the use of these deadly ventilators as they've proven to be for victims of COVID-19. Well, sure enough, and as I predicted at the time of our last broadcast, YouTube has now removed Dave Cullen's video featuring Professor Dolores Cahill, from which we sourced our own audio bites on last week's show. And that now means that all of the people I've just cited have had their perspectives removed from YouTube's platform. (laughs) Well, and then, as irony and fate should have it, the big news broke. And everything these banned from YouTube coronavirus experts were saying suddenly got thrust directly under the whole world spotlight. This headline from the National Post of May 19th. Trump claims he's taking unproven drug for COVID-19. Quote, President Donald Trump said he is currently taking hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malaria drug he has promoted as a treatment to combat coronavirus infection. Trump said Monday at the White House that he's been taking the drug for more than a week. Medical experts have cautioned against the use of hydroxychloroquine as the benefits against coronavirus were unproven and the treatment can carry significant negative health side effects. The Food and Drug Administration on April 24th cautioned against the use of hydrochloroquine or chloroquine for COVID-19 outside of a hospital or clinical trial, citing a risk of heart rhythm problems. Trump said he began the treatment about a week and a half ago. That, of course, would have followed revelations that an official in the White House had tested positive for the virus. Vice President Mike Pence's press secretary, Katie Miller, tested positive for coronavirus on May 8th. Trump was not seen in Pence's company following the diagnosis until Monday when the vice president joined him for a meeting, end quote. So here we have the president of the United States following the very advice given not only by his own doctor, but by all of the frontline healthcare professionals who were just removed from YouTube for not complying with that platform's standards. Though they have yet to identify a single one of those standards that was violated by any of them. Well, on this side of our upcoming bumper, Dave Cullen with an update on why his YouTube interview with Professor Dolores Cahill was removed. And on the return side of the bumper, Sky News Australia's May 19th Bolt report on Trump's announcement regarding his use of hydroxychloroquine, followed by the White House's May 20th media conference on the same issue, featuring Trump's incredible White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. But first, here's Dave Cullen. So, as you know, my video interview with Professor Dolores Cowell was removed by YouTube. It had almost 500,000 views in a week. YouTube has removed many videos from doctors and scientists that have gone against the prevailing mainstream narrative on the topic of the COVID-19 crisis. 
Examples include Dr. Erickson's press conference, Professor Knut Witkowski's first video as part of the Perspectives on Pandemic series on Journeyman Pictures' YouTube channel, also Professor Dolores Cal's interview on Highwire with Dell Bigtree, and the Plandemic Part 1 documentary interview with Professor Judy Mikovits. Suffice to say that censorship has never been an environment in which science has flourished. Well, it turns out there's a little bit more to the story about the removal of my interview with Professor Cahill. I received the following email from a man named Martin Coulter. He's the tech reporter for BusinessInsider.com. Hey Dave, hope you're keeping safe and well under lockdown. I saw your video with Dolores Cal was removed from Facebook and YouTube. I'll be covering this for Business Insider. Do you have any comment to offer with regards to the tech firm's actions? Please let me know when you can, and I'll be sure to include in our article. Thank you, Martin. I visited Martin Coulter's Twitter account shortly thereafter to find the following thread that he wrote. In the video, Professor Dolores Cal makes a series of unverified slash dangerous claims about COVID-19. Cahill claims lockdown is unnecessary, touts the miracle drug hydroxychloroquine as an effective treatment for COVID-19, and claims recovered patients will have immunity for life. There is little to no evidence for any of these claims. Is she not entitled to her own expert opinion on this? She is, after all, far more qualified to talk about this subject than yourself, Martin. If you think Professor Cahill is wrong, why not interview her? By the way, are you going to call out the Daily Mail article published on the 11th? Triple drug combo of anti-malaria pill, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin and zinc improved coronavirus patients' chances of being discharged and cut death risk by almost 50% study finds. Researchers at NYU Grossman School of Medicine looked at 932 coronavirus patients hospitalized between March 2nd and April 5th Half were given a combination of hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc sulfate, and the other half did not receive zinc. Patients receiving the triple drug combination were 1.5 times more likely to recover, enough to be discharged, and 44% less likely to die. The team believes hydroxychloroquine helps zinc, which has antiviral properties, get into infected cells. Also, this website, Covexit.com, the esteemed professor, Paolo Zanotto, from the University of Sao Paulo has released a list of 50 scientific references supporting the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. But anyway, Martin continues, Facebook and YouTube both removed the video after we flagged it. <laughs> what is happening? What is happening, dear viewer? Let me read that again. Facebook and YouTube both removed the video after we flagged it. Some time ago, Donald Trump said he'd heard hydroxychloroquine might work against this virus. And again, most of the media immediately claimed he must be peddling snake oil. And they even blamed him for the death of a man who ingested a fish tank cleaner with hydroxychloroquine in it. I mean, how stupid can that be? It's a crazy stuff. In fact, trials with hydroxychloroquine are now happening all over the world, including right here. Although early results are, yes, true, very mixed. But 
Trump overnight played with his media haters again to audible gasps from the journalists. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. Because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. And if it's not good, I'll tell you right, I'm not going to get hurt by it. It's been around for 40 years for malaria, for lupus, for other things. I take it. Frontline workers take it. A lot of doctors take it. Excuse me. A lot of doctors take it. I take it. Trump is taking this drug as well as zinc under medical supervision, but clearly was playing with the journalists by telling them. I was just waiting to see your eyes light up when I said this. And they did, and off the media went here, there, and everywhere, with the Independent, for instance, sneering that Trump takes hydroxychloroquine every day. Because what his scientists know anyway, and CNN experts, uh, they all trashed him. Shouldn't be taking it. I mean, you know, his own FDA has said that uh, this is still something under investigation. It should not be taken outside of a clinical trial. Uh, taken out of hospitalized, only hospitalized patients should be getting it. I mean, he w what he said about the fact that it's been used for malaria prophylaxis for decades is is true. Um, what we have found more recently is in people who already have. COVID already have this disease, uh, that there are some real concerns, uh, you know, and concerns about impact on the heart, possibly causing these heart arrhythmias. But Trump does not already have the disease, is using it in the way it's being trialled in Australia to prevent you getting it in the first place. The ABC in Melbourne also asked Nobel Prize winner Peter Doherty about it. He's not a Trump lover at all, so he seemed a little bit torn in criticising him. This morning, the US President Donald Trump has said that he is regularly taking hydroxychloroquine uh, as well as zinc, and he finds that's uh, working for him. Your reflection on that? Yeah, zinc's probably not a bad idea. I personally wouldn't take hydroxychloroquine. It's kind of toxic, um, but uh, there's a, there was a bit of evidence that it might be beneficial. A lot of other evidence suggests it might be dangerous, uh, but there are still trials going on. We're not really quite sure about it, I think. And the, and the funny thing there is that the Peter Doherty Institute, named after this very same Peter Doherty, is in itself is itself giving exactly this same drug, hydroxychloroquine, in a trial in patients with coronavirus. In more than 70 hospitals, it says, across Australia and 11 hospitals in New Zealand. How about that? One thing I want to note with regard to hydroxychloroquine, because I think it's very important uh, that we're as accurate as we can be with our reporting on this. Hydroxychloroquine has been a drug that has been in use for 65 years um, for lupus, arthritis, and malaria. It has a very good safety profile, but um, it, as with any drug and as with any prescription, it should be given by a doctor to a patient in that context, so no one should be taking this without a prescription from their doctor. But that being said, I've seen a lot of apoplectic coverage of hydroxychloroquine. You had Jimmy Kimmel saying the president's, quote, trying to kill himself by taking it. You had Joe Scarborough saying, quote, this will kill you. Neil Cavuto saying, what have you got to lose? Um, one thing you have to lose are, are lives. Um, and you had Chris Cuomo saying the president knows that hydroxychloroquine is not su supported by science. He knows it has been flagging, flagged by his own people and he's using it. Um, well, Cuomo mocked the president for this. Um, and interestingly, I found this out just before coming here. 
Um, hydroxychloroquine, of course, is an FDA-approved medication with a long-proven track record for safety, and it turns out um, that Chris Cuomo took a, a less safe version um, of it called Quinine, which the FDA removed from the market in 2006 because of its serious side effects, including death. So really interesting to have that criticism of the president. And on that note to Chris Cuomo, I'd like to redirect him to his brother, the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, um, who has several on-the-record statements about hydroxychloroquine, saying, I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful about the drug, and that's why we'll try it here in New York as soon as we get it. There has been anecdotal evidence that it's promising. That's why we're going ahead. And I have about eight other quotes from Governor Cuomo, should any of you have interest in that. You just cited our studies, though. There are trials that are in their early phases. Do you have any evidence that thousands of frontline workers are currently using it because they believe it actually will prevent them from getting so the FDA, the FDA has approved this for off-label use. You know, this president's a big believer in right-to-try legislation. People who are in their last... There are several studies that have been brought that the president has actually mentioned that I'd refer you to. There was one out of France, a French study um, involving more than a thousand patients that found that the vast majority had, quote, good clinical outcomes. And by the vast majority, that was more than 90%. There was an Italian study of more than 65,000 patients that demonstrated um, only 20 tested positive of those who are taking it prophylactically in a South Korea study as well. So there are several studies, and if you're someone out there and uh, this is a safe drug to use and your doctor, importantly to underscore that, and your doctor prescribes it for your use as a prophylaxis or after coming into contact um, with COVID, then it's something you should take if it's prescribed by the doctor and that's your personal medical choice. I always find it a bit comical in those White House briefings, when you watch them, the medical authorities and media are all wearing masks, whereas Donald Trump and Kaylee McEnany don't wear a mask. <laughs> and if you want to see an exhaustive and exhausting list of studies verifying the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine, just check out some of Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson's YouTube videos on the subject. As a user of the drug herself for the past decade and a half, she has every reason to want to know about the drug's uses and risks. But, in light of what we just heard from Dave Collins, Sky News Australia, Donald Trump, Kayleigh McEnany, and many others, consider this report from the National Post of May 23rd, written by Michael Ehrman and Ankur Banerjee. The headline reads, Malaria Drug Tied to Risk of Death-Medical Study. Subheading reads, No Confirmed Benefit to Patients Found. And I quote, the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine, which U.S. President Donald Trump says he has been taking and has urged others to use, was tied to increased risk of death in hospitalized COVID-19 patients, according to a large study published in the medical journal Lancet. In the study that looked at over 96,000 people hospitalized with COVID-19, those treated with hydroxychloroquine or the related chloroquine had higher risk of death in patients who were not given the medicines. The authors said they could not confirm whether taking the drug resulted in any benefit in coronavirus patients. Urgent confirmation from randomized clinical trials is needed, they wrote. This study was not a placebo-controlled trial. Hospitalized patients tend to have more severe versions of COVID-19. Some proponents of the drugs as treatments for the disease argue that they may need to be administered at an earlier stage in order to be effective. This week, Trump said he has been taking hydroxychloroquine as a preventative medicine, despite a lack of scientific evidence. The Lancet study authors suggest that medicines should not be used to treat COVID-19 outside of clinical trials until those studies confirm their safety and efficacy for COVID-19 patients. 
Both hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have shown evidence of being effective against the coronavirus in a lab setting, but studies of the drugs in patients have proven inconclusive at best. Several small studies in Europe and China spurred interest in using hydroxychloroquine against COVID-19, but were criticized for lacking scientific rigor, end quote. Well, beware of anybody, whoever insists that you should let science be your guide when making a proper decision. That person is being guided by a philosophy himself, not by science, just like anyone else. Today, that's a philosophy of collectivism, which is exactly why we're all in this together. (laughs) By the way, this argument is identical to the one used with respect to climate change, where science is what determines the political will to tax carbon dioxide, and that science, too, is being guided by a philosophy, the same philosophy of collectivism, all in the name of globalism. But to directly address this issue of a lack of scientific rigor concerning hydroxychloroquine's use with SARS-CoV-2 virus patients, what those who say this generally mean is that they or their peers have not yet done a scientific study which would explain the chemical or biological or viral processes that can be constantly repeated under controlled circumstances, etc. To which I say, even if that's true, and it's very unlikely given the long history and approval of the drug, But if it's true, so what? You know, this is reminiscent of the cannabis debate. (laughs) For years, cannabis activists like people like Mark Emery, Chris Goodwin, and Aaron Goodwin, who have all appeared on this show, were arguing and demonstrating the medicinal benefits of cannabis use for various conditions. And at the same time, the establishment prohibited its use and said that was all wrong. You know, they're, they're selling fake news. But slowly over time, medical cannabis was legalized, and now that cannabis has been quote-unquote, completely legalized, suddenly medical uses are many, even though officials continue to call for studies to somehow verify things about cannabis that everyone already knows and has known for a century. And the studies never end up, quote-unquote, proving anything other than measuring statistical outcomes based on whatever criteria were chosen in advance of the study, and that includes medical ones. And as if to offer us a glimpse of what's to come with respect to the post-COVID era, Look at how the sale and regulation of cannabis is being mishandled by governments. Regulated to the hilt. Regulated utterly beyond any reason. And why? Oh, all to protect children and to protect the health of Canadians. Wow, sound familiar? In many respects, there was far more individual freedom at play in Canada with regard to cannabis before it was legalized than after. You know, there was already a complete functioning market in place, but suddenly those who were former prohibitionists entered that marketplace and decided to become monopolists. (laughs) And that's what's effectively going to happen to the entire business landscape as long as any further authority to force economic shutdowns and prohibitions of freedom of association continue to exist. These things have to be ended. These ominous responses and negative reactions to life-saving treatments regarding COVID-19 also reveal agendas and intentions completely inconsistent with any sincere concerns about saving lives or flattening curves. And when the Lancet study cited previously reported that hydroxychloroquine was tied to increased risk of death in hospitalized COVID-19 patients, this does not mean cause and effect. As Donald Trump himself very clearly explained at a recent White House media conference, the trials being conducted include a large sampling of very, very ill patients, most long past their point of recovery 
These are hospitalized patients, and as the National Post article itself notes, quote, hospitalized patients tend to have a more severe version of COVID-19. Some proponents of the drugs, as treatments for the disease, argue they need to be administered at an earlier stage in order to be effective, end quote. Well, of course, hospitalized patients have more severe symptoms. That's why they're in the hospital. And by the way, we're still learning a lot of new stuff about how this virus spreads or does not spread. And these discoveries are coming out of controlled tests, as I recently heard being reported about by Ben Shapiro. And on one of his shows, he pointed out how apparently surfaces and touching things are not as great a risk as previously believed to the point that they're almost negligible. But here's the real new discovery. Even when airborne, the virus is not nearly as contagious as originally feared. In fact, what seems to be a determining factor is time. The time that someone spends constantly rebreathing in the same virus pool in an enclosed space. A short exposure poses little risk, even if you walk into someone's home and everyone's infected. It's a prolonged exposure that is the real risk. And you know that perfectly explains why old age homes and seniors' homes in close quarters tend to contract the virus you know, and its occupants die in high numbers. It also explains why more and more reports are coming forward that the virus is spreading rapidly within private homes, where people have been shut together for so long in, the, in an enclosed space. And by the way, that's the same principle that causes any flu to become more contagious in the winter months due to people being indoors for longer periods of time. That's where the whole term flu season comes from. <laughs> And it also justifies the advice given by so many frontline healthcare professionals who recommend not wearing a mask, since a mask is causing you to recirculate the latent viruses you carry around in your own body. And if you're carrying a SARS-CoV-2 virus, you could literally be giving the disease, not the virus, to yourself. Yet despite all of the accumulating data and evidence that contradicts the official narrative, our politicians and media continue to act as if we're still in full pandemic, one that threatens the lives of each and every one of us. And every day we get updates of tiny, insignificant numbers of cases and caseloads. What caseloads? Hospitals are empty. Which, by the way, do not necessarily represent instances of COVID-19, but merely cases of people who have tested positive for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The media and politicians continue to regard every case of the virus as bad news. The very kind of news that politicians have threatened to keep things shut down over. And that's totally ironic because, as Professor Dolores Cahill recently pointed out last week, these cases should be celebrated as cases of people who are immunized from the disease. That's good news. And remember, she had the virus herself earlier in the year. So now here in Ontario, where I live, Provincial Premier Doug Ford wants everyone in the province to get a test. Talk about a complete waste of time and money. And you know, I've been thinking, given YouTube's recent deplatforming of the videos featuring the frontline doctors who all recommended hydroxychloroquine, I have to wonder, what position does that now put Donald Trump in when it comes to complying with YouTube regulations? Is YouTube going to take down all the White House videos where Trump is talking about hydroxychloroquine and giving the same kind of advice and insights and observations that these people were making? You know, we've gone beyond a farce on this whole COVID-19 shutdown. In fact, it might be best to call it an act of economic suicide on a grand scale, as the next voices you are about to hear on our upcoming audio bite would suggest. And it brings us 
Full circle, back to what this whole pandemic shutdown was about in the first place, flattening the so-called curve. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, I'm delighted that my guest this week is Britain's best-known historian. David Starkey came on to our show last year, actually, and his interview with us proved to be one of the most popular we've ever done. Uh, hello there, David. Hi. Hello, Peter. <laughs> what sort of state do you think we're in at the moment with this? How do you think it's being handled? Oh, uh, we've committed economic suicide. And I think it's really very important to be quite clear. Um, we've, we talk about it as the COVID-19 crisis. It's not. It's a specific political crisis, which bizarrely, everybody seems to have got themselves into, starting with the Chinese. In other words, it's an, an extraordinary version of the emperor's new clothes. Because what we need to understand, Peter, is there is enormously long history of epidemics, pandemics. But what is peculiar about um, COVID-19 is it's not actually a very serious disease. Uh, if you look at the numbers affected in Britain that we have been putting this, you know, immense passion about, but it's 40,000 deaths. That out of a population of 60 million mm. is an infinite percentage. If you go back to a real pandemic, if we go back to the Black Death of the middle of the 14th century, uh, you're looking there at a first impact when it hit England of about 20 to 25% of the population with repeated returns. So that by the end of the 14th century, the population of England is half what it was mm. at the beginning. Mm. What is unique, in other words, about this pandemic is, apart from the fact it's rather small, is that the damage that it does is self-inflicted. Earlier plagues did inflict enormous economic damage. I mean, curiously, the Black Death did not inflict economic damage. Some other plagues had much more terrible consequences. They were on a similar scale. Uh, the Great Plague, uh, which afflicts the late Roman Empire, the so-called Justinian Plague, um, which sweeps across. They all begin in China, by the way. They all begin in that corner uh, of, of the eastern Eurasian landmass. This is a very odd plague. It's rather small in scale, but it's gigantic in consequences because we have chosen to inflict uh, a form of economic suicide on ourselves. There's no other way that one can describe it. write a column for the critic magazine don't you and in that it's very interesting you actually pinpoint a particular weekend when policy sort of changed so that Boris Johnson and the government had been going along one path and then on this weekend there were a few events that happened that made them change direction can you tell us what that was yes until uh, the weekend the key weekend and this will go down in history. This is the first draft of the history of the overreaction to COVID-19 in Britain. We were going to go along with what Sweden has done. Mm. 
mm. we were going to go along with um, uh, what is uh, what was um, uh, demonized as as um, uh, as herd immunity, but which would have resulted in things like social distancing, um, uh, a suggestion that people uh, observed extra special hygiene and that sort of thing, but not this gigantic lockdown. But what happened that weekend, and it's, it's, this Peter is how history is made. We tend to think of history as being gradual. Yeah. Usually history is a crisis. Things turn on a pin's head. And in that weekend, three things happen. And the first is that the deaths, you know, they're running at about 20 or 30. They double. That looks dramatic. The second thing that happens is the nemesis of Britain, France, President Macron of France, threatens to close the frontier if Britain did not adopt the same kind of extreme measures which France had done. The third thing is private information uh, from a journalist friend of mine uh, who is exceedingly well informed. And on the Sunday at Northwick Park Hospital in northwest London, one of the areas that has been of the capital throughout has been worst afflicted by the virus. There were scenes that were reminiscent of what was happening in Italy and what was happening in Spain. And I think at that point, the government simply panics. Mm. And a few days later, you get Neil Ferguson's absurd report uh, that from Imperial College suggesting half a million deaths. Mm. And I think the combination of that localized panic and these gigantic figures suddenly landing on their deaths mm. produces a complete change of approach. But there's another factor, Peter, that we've got to put in, the new compact. In other words, reuniting the South with the North. Part of that compact is that the Tories had to present themselves as absolutely the party of the mm. NHS. Mm. If you're going to take over as uh, blue Labour in the North, you've got to be beyond doubt committed to the NHS. Yep. Still the manifesto did that. Now look suddenly at what's happening. On the evening of the 15th, it looks as though the headlines in two days time are going to be NHS overwhelmed under mm. Tories. Mm, mm. That is the key issue. And if you look at what was then done, we focused all the time. You began talking about lockdown. Again, as you can see from Sweden, lockdown doesn't make very much difference. The thing that w was peculiar, the thing that was odd in Britain, were the measures that were taken, because the steps that were decided were to protect the face of the NHS at all costs. Right. The, and the decisions are as follows. The first is you stop all forms of surgery and diagnostic testing completely. Cancer, heart disease, the lot. Mm. The National Health Service becomes the National COVID Service. Right. Secondly, you clear every bed that you can mm. so that you can deal with the expected influx of COVID patients. This is when, of course, patients, usually elderly, the so-called bed blockers, very well have had COVID-19, get sent back to care homes. And so it is this, it's this series of astonishing clinical decisions, which of course are coupled with something else. You also shut down dentistry. Mm, mm, astonishing. Mm, mm, mm. You shut down all private medicine. Mm. 
you do a deal uh, with the private hospitals. You close them down. Mm. And the result of this, of course, is that Britain was spared that humiliation. We did not have the scenes that were in Italy. We mm. did not have the scenes that were in Spain. But there is a terrible price to mm. pay because we've got two other sets of deaths mm. which are now catching up. Mm. They're the deaths of the people who should have been treated for cancer, who should have been treated for heart mm. disease, who are also terrified to go to hospital because of COVID-19 mm. and therefore are dying in droves. And then there is the final sting in the tail as the deaths go down in hospitals, they go up in, in care, care homes, homes. Yeah. because why were we so casual, Peter, about care homes? Mm. Because they're not part of the NHS. Mm. They're not covered by that magic label. In other words, it tried to protect the institution, mm. not the patient. Mm. Mm. And this is what's coming back to haunt us. Would you say then that we should have stayed on the same track as Sweden has? That that's what we should of be course. doing now? Of course, because what is going to happen, Peter, is eventually every country will have roughly the same level of mortality mm. unless they continue to seal themselves off. Mm. And so it's not only going to be that. I think there's another issue, which is the only way that you can have serious structures of healthcare is because you have serious economies. Whereas what we've done is lurch completely. And we also did something which I think is really unforgivable which is that we lurched without a plan. Yeah, yeah. What I am describing now is not a plan to deal with an epidemic. It is a plan to save the face of the NHS. Wow. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Particulars aside, everything described by historian David Starkey with regard to Britain's National Health Service is a complete mirror of what happened to Ontario's healthcare system. From day one of this shutdown, everything pointed to it all being done for a single reason, to save our own version of the NHS. But even that is only one critical piece of the larger story. Now that many countries have saved their healthcare systems by committing economic suicide, the question remains, where are we headed now? Well, here's a hint. This headline from the National Post of May 23rd, written by Stuart Thompson, Canada braces for potential second wave with the subheading, we can expect to see an increase of non-compliance. And I quote, a second wave can come in a variety of forms, according to a study by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the University of Minnesota. The scenarios examined in the paper include a fall peak, which would be a massive single wave of infections larger than the first wave, a slow burn, which would keep infections on a fairly manageable scale, and a series of peaks and valleys which would bring three or four more waves about the size of the first one. There is an uneasy feeling among some provincial governments that people won't react well to schools and daycares being opened and closed several times, even if that's necessary to battle a second wave of the virus. No one in Canada still alive is used to these kinds of sacrifices or public policy moral quandaries, said an Ontario government official who was not authorized to speak publicly about the issue. Things will not be normal until we get a vaccine, end quote. Well, by now, we should all know where that argument leads. When that headline read, Canada braces for potential second wave, what's really being meant 
is a second wave of shutdowns, hence the subheading, we can expect to see an increase of non-compliance. I mean, compliance or non-compliance is a non-issue if it actually comes down to talking about a virus. It is an issue when the intention of our officials is to entrench their current violation of individual rights and freedoms. It's becoming a horror story. The stuff that's coming out of the mouths of our politicians and government officials in the mainstream media. Now, trust me, I know very well that the kind of information and analysis about COVID-19 that's being offered here on this show on a regular basis is at complete odds with almost everything you're hearing on the so-called corporate TV and radio networks, and of course in the corporate news print media as well. I think the articles I shared with you today more than aptly demonstrated a view utterly hostile to those that we usually give on this show. And again, this applies equally to the climate change propaganda battle. Personally, (laughs) I find it an excruciating experience to occasionally tune into my local broadcast radio stations, only to hear the same repetitive, steady drone of mindless, false, and utterly out-of-context propaganda about COVID-19, all accompanied by a daily reminder of just how dumb our politicians really are. The way they're pissing taxpayer dollars out the window is criminal. It is purely a leftist approach to a crisis that was caused by leftist politics. So like it or not, all of these issues are fundamentally political, and therefore the polarities are always between what we call the left and the right. There's only two. Coming up on the return side of our next bumper break is a May 24th report from Canada's CBC News on the supposed failure of Torontonians to physically distance themselves when they were in a park recently. But first, here's Laura Ingram, as heard on her May 21st Fox News commentary. Now, earlier today, a good friend of mine and I were talking about how surprising it was that so many Americans were willing to give up their inalienable rights for a government promise of safety. Basic liberties, the right to work, to travel, to worship, free speech, the right to attend school, to petition the government, to assemble with others. They all were completely sidelined or partially sidelined during the COVID-19 shutdowns. Officials assured us that restrictions would be short-lived and only be in place until we flatten the curve. But even after we did that, and hospitals thankfully were not overrun, blue state governors began piling on new conditions in order for states to be fully reopened again. They had complicated requirements in a New York uh, 51-page reopening document. Michigan, then Illinois and Washington State, they seem hell-bent on keeping people immobile and scared as long as possible. And now they found a new excuse for delay. The need for hundreds of thousands of so-called contact tracers. It's all for our own good and protection, that's what they say. The goal? To create a roadmap of everywhere infected people have been and who they've been around. That's a heavy lift. So how many of these tracers will we actually need? Some health officials estimate that as many as 300,000 contact tracers would be needed in the country to effectively mitigate the spread. Are you kidding me? 300,000? I'm telling you, there are always going to be plenty of reasons cited by government bureaucrats or unelected technocrats uh, to justify taking your freedoms away. 
they'll cite scary things like gun violence, climate change, and now, of course, COVID, maybe the next virus. And they'll use our fear and maybe even skewed statistics or bad modeling to manipulate the public perception. They'll find experts who insist that the harm to personal privacy is minimal and that any trade-off is worth it. They'll promise their actions will be temporary and narrowly tailored. But invariably, these new programs, like what we saw after 9-11, will become permanent fixtures in American life. Thomas Jefferson used that word inalienable to describe our rights for a reason. Americans are born free. We don't get our rights from the government, and the government can never take them away. The government may sometimes force us to make sacrifices, but not indefinitely, and not without a serious debate over what is, in fact, absolutely necessary to preserve the lives of others. Today, too many officials are forgetting those basic facts. Well, officials are threatening to close one of Toronto's biggest city parks if people don't respect physical distancing rules. Huge crowds gathered at Trinity Bellwoods Park yesterday. Many of the thousands in attendance seem too close to be safe. And Laura McQuillan is on the story for us and joins us now. So what happened, Laura? Well, a lot of Torontonians this morning, John, waking up seeing those photos from Trinity Bellwoods Park yesterday, not happy about what their neighbours have been up to. Take a look at some of the images we're seeing. Thousands of people turning out to Trinity Bellwoods. It's a big park in Toronto, very popular in summer. As you can see there, uh, a lot of groups, certainly many of them numbering more than five, which is the current restriction on gathering sizes in Ontario. We know that police and enforcement officers were there, but as for what they were doing, we're waiting on those details. I spoke to police this morning and they said that they were reminding people about physical distancing, but they weren't enforcing that because they only had six officers there despite the thousands of people who were there. Now, we're waiting to get an update from police on why they only had six officers when this is a pandemic and there are bylaws and provincial orders in place. Beautiful day yesterday, John. You saw the sun out there, but Ontario is seeing an uptick in its number of COVID-19 cases. So all of this is coming as a real concern to those infectious disease experts, those emergency room doctors dealing with COVID-19 every day. Here's what one of them told us. I think the issue is who's there? How are they physically distancing? And who are these people in groups? Are these families that are just having a nice picnic? My suspicion is probably not. And that might be part of the problem. We can look at Toronto as an area that's really been hit lately. And it's not to blame on long-term care anymore. This is a community spread thing. And John, it takes about 10 days to two weeks to see, you know, an infection trickle through into those confirmed COVID-19 numbers. Currently, the bump that we're seeing in new cases has come from that Mother's Day weekend. Since then, it's been Victoria Day. And uh, experts like Dr. Carr, who you just heard from, are worried that in another 10 to 14 days from now, there could be another big bump from that behavior yesterday. Yeah, this as the economy is really just starting up with uh, physical distancing and the retail sector, et cetera. So let's talk about the response from officials. 
There is real worry from uh, Toronto officials about what they saw yesterday. We've got a statement from the city which we can show you and it's saying that gatherings like this where people aren't keeping their distance run the risk of setting the city back significantly in its efforts to stop COVID-19. Now, they say there will be extra police, extra enforcement officers at Trinity Bellwoods Park today. Uh, it is blue skies right now, John, but it's set to get cloudy and potentially rainy a bit later on, so they might not need to do that much enforcement. But in the meantime, just reinforcing what the messages are and what the rules are. Right now, gatherings in Ontario are restricted to five people at a maximum. In Toronto, if you're in a park, you have to stay two metres away from people who aren't from within your household. And there are fines if you breach either of those rules. Uh, and of course, experts saying uh, that you should be wearing a mask if you can't stay two metres away from others in uh, an area like what we saw yesterday, John. A lot of worries about that behaviour and what it might mean for COVID-19 in Toronto. Thanks for this, Laura. Meanwhile, a Toronto infectious disease expert took to Twitter to share his dismay at those scenes from that crowded park. Dr. Abdushakawi's message was emotional, also practical. He says he doesn't want people gathering in Trinity Bellwoods Park to become his patients down the line. Today is Eid, which is kind of like uh, Christmas Day for me. And I'm not at home. Um, I'm not with my kids. I'm not celebrating this with them. I'm here in the hospital looking after sick patients with COVID-19. And I see pictures of people in groups of 10 who are tanning and who are having a great time not worrying about distancing or anything else that they should be thinking about when they think about having COVID-19 or putting other people at risk and I'm really hurt when I see that. I'm really saddened when I see that because I wonder if those people know the sacrifices that people like myself, my colleagues in the emergency room and the ICU are making to allow you to have the freedom to spend your day out in the sun in parks you know, I can't honestly recall when I've ever heard a more sanctimonious, self-indulgent display of shameless virtue signaling. What a completely irrational outburst. It got me thinking, does he equally resent the COVID-19 patients currently in his care as much as he says he resents the people sitting in the park? Because the people in the park aren't forcing him to be in the ICU department of his hospital. Nobody is. He's not making a sacrifice. You know, he'd still be sitting working where he is, regardless of whether or not people were in the park that day. And, you know, here is the classic example of altruism in action. Altruism is all about sacrificing oneself for the benefit of others. And this doctor clearly and loudly resents his having to make a so-called sacrifice for the benefit of others, in this case, so that people could sit in the park. Well, if that's why he says he's making a sacrifice, then why does he resent it when people are doing exactly what he made the sacrifice for? Does that make sense to anybody? And the CBC reporters in that piece calling for more police to supposedly save us from a virus are no less guilty of shameless virtue signaling as they pretend to be motivated by saving lives. And to hear that a supposedly free citizen of this supposedly free country of Canada can still be subject to fines for exercising his own free will and judgment with whom he associates 
is a social and political obscenity. Who the hell has any right to ask you if the people you're seen with in public are members of your own household? And why does it matter? The SARS-CoV-2 virus is supposed to spread. We are all eventually expected to get it. That's exactly what we were told by the very people who said the social distancing rules were only to prevent hospitals from being overloaded. So where did that narrative suddenly disappear to? The pandemic we're in the middle of now is a political viral attack on our fundamental rights and freedoms. Laura Ingram basically got it right when she raised the concept of inalienable rights, though I think she might possibly have stepped into some philosophically muddy waters with her conclusion when she said, quote, the government may sometimes force us to make sacrifices, but not indefinitely or without debate about what is absolutely necessary to save the lives of others, end quote. Well, saving the lives of others is not the primary responsibility of government in the sense that would apply to viral pandemics. When that is made a priority, well, you get exactly what we've got today, and sometimes a lot worse. But Ingram's citing that inalienable rights imply that we're born free and do not get our rights from government is on the mark. Many others have made the same observation, but here's what rarely gets said. The reason that individual rights are inalienable is because no one else can possibly, quote-unquote, possess your life. They can deprive you of it or end your life by killing you, but they can't possess it, in the sense that you might be able to steal property and run away with that. So both your life itself and your right to your own life are inalienable. And properly defined, a right pertains to freedom of action, not a right to a thing or to a service provided by others. Thus, when we speak of the rights to life, liberty, and property, and the pursuit of happiness, we are similarly referring to inalienable rights. The right to property does not mean that property must be provided for you by others. It means you have the right to take the appropriate action necessary to acquire property on your own, whether that means land, a house, or just a shirt on your back. Property is about ownership. And that's why liberty, which is individual freedom of action, properly enshrined and protected by governments, is an essential ingredient of the right to life. Rights pertain to action. Your right to the pursuit of happiness, similarly, does not mean that someone else or society has to provide you with that happiness. You have to exercise your own liberty to achieve that, even if you never get to your happiness quotient. It's the pursuit that counts here, and the pursuit that relates to action. Together, the trinity of life, liberty, and property create that condition that we call freedom. The condition that allows individuals to pursue their individualistic paths to happiness. But unlike rights, freedom is conditional. Based on the idea that none of us has a right to violate the individual rights of others. It's not like one of us gets all the rights and the rest of us don't. And that concept is known as equality. We all have the same rights and we're all equal before and under the law. And if we can't agree to that then the condition of freedom simply will not exist. Instead, we'll be living in a condition of tyranny, where your inalienable right to life belongs to the state, where your liberty can be arbitrarily restricted and prohibited, and where property is either owned by the state, which is communism and socialism, or simply controlled by the state, which is known as fascism. And guess in which direction our politicians are hurting us? If we ever needed to develop herd immunity, it's to this political pandemic. I'd like to close off the show by assuring you that the shutdown is almost at a close, but I, I'm afraid it's just starting.
I fear the worst is yet to come, with or without a continued SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And like it or not, we're all in this together. So here's looking forward to our next being together, as we invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Remember the good old days when washing your hands didn't take three hours? <laughs> like ABCD. Uh, just take me now. <laughs>